The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Last time I was here was three years ago, talking about my first book. Were there, are there people here who were there then? Oh, how nice. Okay, a few. So, um, some of you then know, and others if you've read my first book, that I'm, I'm not in the best of health. About, it's been 12 and a half years now, um, I got a seemingly ordinary, everyday type viral infection, but I never recovered. And we're not sure why. Um, so although I, I know that I look fine to everybody, <laughs> um, to be blunt, I feel as if I have the flu. And I have felt that way for 12 and a half years. I often call it the flu without the fever. So I guess that's something to be thankful for, <laughs> no fever. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm really happy to have come. Uh, Gil was one of my first uh, Dharma teachers 20 years ago. So I, I'm just happy to be here. Um, my new book, which is How to Wake Up, the the blue one, not the orange one, came about largely because of feedback that I received from people who'd read my first book. They would send, sent me emails really from all over the world um, asking me about all of life's difficulties, not necessarily, often not connected to their health issues worry over their children or stress on the job and sadness over losses, all the, well, all the things that you and I have to deal with. And um, in order to be able to answer them skillfully, I returned to the Buddha's core teachings to see what he had to say about why we're so easily thrown off kilter and so easily uh, dissatisfied with life and what we might be able to do to find a measure of peace uh, in our day-to-day -day existence when things are so uncertain and unpredictable and uh, sometimes just plain hard. And so... Um, in, when I began this study, I was wonderfully surprised to realize how grounded in everyday life the Buddha's teachings are. And how that meant that uh, our, I could look at my own conditioning and my own behavior and that, our, and that it was true for everybody, that our own conditioning, our own behavior, hold the clue to why we feel uneasy or feel unhappy and uh, what we might be able to do about it. And so it's out of that um, investigation that the second book came about. And I, it's called How to Wake Up, which is a, a bit 
bold perhaps, but uh, by waking up, I'm referring to my own understanding of the Buddha's awakening. And that's why I call it Buddhist-inspired, because in the subtitle, this is, reflects my own understanding. I don't believe there was anything supernatural about that awakening. As the story goes, the Buddha sat down under a tree and began to carefully and mindfully observe his experience. And he sat that way for seven days and seven nights, and then he woke up. And it's a, fra- a term I prefer. I prefer awakening to words like enlightenment because they tend to carry that supernatural aura with them. He woke up to the, what it means to be human, both its stark realities and the potential it holds for us to find a measure of peace and sense of well-being and contentment. So uh, let me start with the, the stark realities. Um, they can be boiled down into two experiences that all of us share. Impermanence, you've heard that before, and the inevitability of some tough times, which is one way to express dukkha. Impermanence, of course, refers to the ever-changing nature of our experience. The Persian poet Rumi put it this way, is not impermanence the very fragrance of our day? One of my first Buddhist teachers, Joseph Goldstein, put it this way. Anything can happen at any time. (laughs) Not as poetic, but it certainly cuts to the chase. Anything can happen at any time. And I like that characterization because it points to what I think of as two corollaries of impermanence that I focus on in the book. One of them is uncertainty, and the other is unpredictability. We certainly spend a lot of time seeking their opposites. Certainty and predictability. They're appealing because they would provide a a sense of safety and security. But the truth is we control much less of our lives than we'd like. The Buddha went so far as to say that the only thing we control is our own actions. That's the fifth of his five remembrances. The only thing we control is our own actions. And, you know, our initial reaction to that might be, well, okay, phew, that's enough certainty and predictability for me. But, you know, it's not hard to come up with examples. I can go back to what happened to me 12 and a half years ago. I controlled my own actions when my husband, who's also named Tony, some of you know him. (laughs) So um, when Tony and I got on an airplane to go to Paris for what was supposed to be a wonderful three-week stay, 
I controlled my actions when I got on that airplane, but I didn't control picking up a virus somewhere along the way, probably on the airplane, that over a decade later keeps me mostly housebound. This is as very unusual for me to be out like this. So, uh, you know, and I'm happy to do it, but as a result, I will be in the bed for a while afterwards. So what did I control there? And then um, last April, uh, Tony and I went to a restaurant for an early birthday dinner for me, and he controlled his actions when he decided what he what he wanted to eat for dinner and ordered it off the menu. But he didn't control whatever went on in the kitchen that landed us in the, in the ER, he in anaphylactic shock. And, you know, we still don't know. And we're not 100% certain that the kitchen was the culprit. We don't know. So... Um, much of what happens to us is simply beyond our ability to control. And it's as true if you're in a third world country as if you're in the Silicon Valley, <laughs> the most advanced technological place on earth, perhaps. Denying or even resisting impermanence, the, the uncertainty, unpredictability of our experience can be a great source of dissatisfaction and unhappiness, what Buddhists, of course, often refer to as suffering. Um, let me quote Pema Chodron on this point. The very first noble truth of the Buddha points out that suffering is inevitable for human beings as long as we believe that things last, that they can be counted on to satisfy our hunger for security. And things, of course, refers not just to physical things, but to intangibles like relationships. So that's the first experience, impermanence and its corollaries. The second experience that is common to all of us is that although life has its joys, thank goodness, it also has its tough and stressful times. We're in bodies, and bodies get sick, they get injured, they get old. Uh, sadness arises when we're separated from those whom we love. Think of the servicemen and women who are deployed overseas. Men who miss the birth of their child. Women who are separated from their families. Sometimes their, their own young children. So this is, there's a tendency to think of loss as just separation by death, which of course is another loss, but there's also separation by distance. And I refer to these kinds of losses, uh, these kinds of sorrows and difficulties, big and small in our lives, as the 10,000 sorrows, which is a, an, an ancient 
Chinese phrase, 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows. The first section of how to wake up is called cultivating wisdom. And wisdom refers to comprehending on a deep level the nature of life as we experience it, impermanent, uncertain, unpredictable, joyful at times, sorrowful at times, pleasant at times, unpleasant at times. This is the human condition that the Buddha woke up to sitting under that tree for seven days. But remember that Uh, In my understanding, the Buddha had a two-pronged awakening. Yes, he awoke to the realities of the human condition, and those you can see reflected in, in the formulation of the noble truths. Um, And in the three marks of experience, impermanence, no self, and uh, dukkha, or suffering, I'm not discussing no self separately because to me, that's another corollary of impermanence. If nothing stays the same, neither do our identities. So there's this constant shifting of identities. But that was one prong of awakening. The other prong was his awakening to the potential to find our measure of peace and well-being in the midst of those stark realities. And one of the keys to realizing this potential is to recognize, through practice, to recognize and then simply not take up the compelling desire to make what's uncertain certain, to have only pleasant experiences, I still got that desire going. (laughs) And to never experience sadness or sorrow again. Learn to recognize it and for what it is and say, yeah, okay, that's there. These are mindfulness practices that are really the second section of the book. And not buy into it. Um, These types of desires and fantasies are a recipe for dissatisfaction and unhappiness because they cannot be fulfilled. We cannot make life certain. We cannot get through life without some tough times. In June, a close friend of mine died, and it hit me very hard. I think it was partly that this was a new friendship, almost just three years to the day. And we had become very close, very fast. So how do you wake up in the midst of such deep sorrow? My understanding is you wake up by being present for it, by not turning away in aversion, but by acknowledging how painful it is, by treating yourself kindly and with compassion for the, the suffering you're experiencing. And it also means, for me it meant finding my way to equanimity, that balanced and 
evenness of temper that allows me to see that life is inevitably a mixture of joys and sorrows, getting my way, not getting my way, and that I cannot control the length of anybody's life. So that's my understanding of the Buddha's awakening, seeing clearly the nature of human existence and, then, and being present for our life as it is, no matter how it's unfolding. Easy to say, not so easy to do, being present for our life, especially in, when it's unpleasant. And one, there are several reasons why it's difficult to be present. One of them, and I have divided them into nature and nurture. Nature, let's talk, I'll talk about that for a minute. Our uh, brains have evolved, really, as a, as a survival mechanism to move toward pleasant experiences and away from unpleasant ones. really to get rid of unpleasant ones altogether. And certainly that's a good thing at times. It can save our lives. But it can also become a source of suffering and, and unhappiness because we cannot have only pleasant experiences. So, um, you know, we, we wake up every morning hoping, well, this day will be only pleasant, but it's never happened to me. <laughs> and yet that is, we've got that, uh, we're hardwired to move in that direction. So that's one of the reasons why it's difficult to accept how things are going when they're not to our liking. That's nature. Nurture is... I use that word to refer to the conditioning that all of us have undergone since early childhood from our parents, from other influential people in our lives, teachers, um, uh, mentors, and then uh, increasingly as we get older from the culture around us. Uh, We shouldn't underestimate the depth and strength of that conditioning. For example, most of us are told from childhood that if we work hard enough and keep a positive attitude, our dreams can come true. Someone recently pointed me, she wanted to know, well, what did I think of this book? To um, a new book by a... um, best-selling, unlike moi, a best-selling self-help guru. And his new book is called Wishes Fulfilled. And so I I said, okay, I'll look it up at Amazon. But I couldn't get past this soundbite in the book description. This is a quote from the author. All of your wishes can come true. Well, you know, I, I don't remember the moment in my life when I realized that was a crock. <laughs> but um, I don't know about you, but I was conditioned from childhood to think this way. Work hard, think positively, and nothing is out of reach. 
Um, well, you know, I've, I've worked hard. I've worked for 12 and a half years to get my health back. I've, uh, I live in Davis, so I've been to maybe 20 doctors through my primary care physician because he, he wants me to get my health back too. The specialist there, I underwent a very um, toxic antiviral treatment through a doctor at Stanford here, um, which in the end only made me worse. So uh, not only do I try hard, but I'm always very positive when when I undertake a new treatment. I think this is the one, but it hasn't been the case. And... um, So, in my life anyway, working hard, keeping a positive attitude uh, does not make my dreams come true. For many years after getting sick, my dream was to be able to go back to my profession. I was a law professor at UC Davis. Just like that. Done. So that was my dream. And I worked hard and I kept a positive attitude. Didn't come true. So um, that's one example of conditioning. The conditioning that I consider the most damaging that, that probably all of us are subject to, I certainly have been, is this ever-present cultural message, really bombardment, that tells us that the key to lasting happiness is getting our way, getting what we want, getting our... fulfilling our desires a better car a better job a new exercise machine that will get us our youthful bodies back whatever getting what we want will bring us lasting happiness this sets us up for a big dose of disappointment really for two reasons. One is that most of our desires go unfulfilled. We, we just don't get our way a lot of the time in small ways and in big ways. We could consider my desire to go back to my profession a big way. Um, in addition, our minds are as ever-changing as everything else. That's our that reality of impermanence. And so... Even when we do fulfill a desire, it's not long before we've moved on to something else. We may uh, think, if only I could get this job, I'd be happy. Well, it's kind of how I felt about my work. If only I could get back in the classroom, I'd be happy. But, you know, if you get that job, it may come with some not-so-attractive features, like a boss... (laughs) who's impossible. You know, at the law school, they're always changing deans. I know because I had to go through my rotation (laughs) in that role. I was just the dean of students, not the dean dean. But, you know, some of them are a pleasure to work under and some of them not so much. And, you know, it could be that job is so awful that it's not long before you're tying your happiness to the next job you're looking for. Tony and I had this happen with a young friend of us, not so a young friend of ours, not so long ago. She she it wasn't a lawyer's job, but she trained and 
and um, got a degree and wanted this job with a firm so badly, she thought this would be it. This would make her happy. And she got the job, and she was miserable. The hours were way too long. Her supervisor didn't appreciate her work. She really didn't find other people in the environment that she had rapport with. And so instead of bringing her this lasting, sustained happiness, this dream job brought her mostly frustration and disappointment. And because she tied her happiness to getting that job, the road downhill was a very, very bumpy one. The Buddha had a name for this if-only type of desire. He called it the unquenchable thirst. That's the translation of tanha, a word that I know many of you know. And one of the chapters in the book carries that title. The, I call it, I believe, <laughs> want, don't want. That's how I like to describe tanha, because that's how I spend a good part of my day. So, want, don't want, the unquenchable thirst. And of course, tanha is a particular type of desire. In the language of the Buddha, Pali, there were many, there were several words for what in English we put under this umbrella term, desire. So tanha doesn't refer to preferences, like I want chocolate over vanilla ice cream. We're not tying our happiness to that, our lasting happiness will be momentary. And it doesn't refer to mundane desires, like I'm, I, I want to turn left at the next interse- intersection. Nor does it refer to um, altruistic desires, to help someone in distress. Tana is a type of desire that manifests as this compelling sense of need. And that's why it's that sense of need that hooks us and gets us to tie the fulfilling of a desire to our very ability to be happy. This is what happened to our young friend, And this is how I felt about my illness for many years. The desire to have my health restored was so strong that I had tied it to my ability to ever be happy again. And this was something I did not have control over. Now, I'm not suggesting that we be passive. I'm always on the outlook for new treatments. Um, I've got Dr. Google over here, and I've got, I've got the flesh and blood doctors over here. So, um, and our friend has found a new job, hopefully taking to it more reasonable expectations this time. So be an advocate and be an activist, but know that you're entering the land of delusion if you find yourself believing that getting your way will make you forever happy. So what can we do about this nature and nurture? This, uh, the nature I call it, I think of as an evolutionary preference that we've developed 
as this survival mechanism. Evolutionary preference for pleasant experiences and to, for, to wipe out all unpleasantness. And what can we do about this conditioning that keeps us focused on this if only, if only I could get this, I'd be happy. If only I could, if I, only I could still jog like I used to. I might need to say no, but if only I could jog, then I, you know. Well, what we can do, and here's the good news, is we can change. The Buddha said it 2,500 years ago, and now neuroscientists are confirming the same thing. The Buddha said the mind is as soft and pliant as the balsam tree. And neuroscientists, in their language, are saying that the mind can be reconditioned. It's constantly rewiring and um, reconditioning itself. And so this means that with practice, we can change our mental habits. We can change this conditioning that is really... Uh, has us living in a world of delusion a good part of the time. When we're no longer lost in fantasies that fly in the face of the way things are, we're free to fully experience what's going on in our lives right now. Um, I like this comment from Zen teacher Lynn Jensen. I don't have to be slapped in the face to wake up. I need only be plucked up out of whatever comforting narrative I've designed for myself and dropped back into the world as it is. Sure wish I'd found that before this went to press. (laughs) I might have found its way into the book. (laughs) I really like that. Back into, as I was putting it, back into what's going on right now in our lives. So with practice, we can become aware of this conditioning and begin to reverse it. And not only that, we can lay down new habits by intentionally turning our attention to the cultivation of more peaceful and uh, joyous mental states. Kindness, compassion, happiness for others when they're happy, equanimity. If these are sounding familiar to some of you, it's the four Brahmaviharas, which translates as the dwelling place of awakened beings. And the third section of the book is devoted to the four Brahmaviharas. I, uh, sometimes the first one, metta, is, it's usually translated as loving kindness. I translate it, as some uh, people now are, as kindness and friendliness, compassion, reaching out to others when they're suffering, joy in others' joy, and equanimity. So I'm going to stop for a minute to read um, a short excerpt from the book from that section, there's a chapter that introduces all four Brahma-viharas, and then there are separate chapters on each of them. So this is from the chapter that introduces them, and this is on equanimity. 
Cultivating equanimity helps us learn to greet whatever is present in our experience with an evenness of temper so our minds stay calm and steady, stay balanced and steady in the face of life's ups and downs. This is a tall order, especially because it means engaging our lives with ease amid both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. For me, the greatest challenge in cultivating equanimity has been to let go of my self-appointed role as the fixer. In the movie Michael Clayton, George Clooney plays a fixer. When his law firm makes a mess of a case, it's his job to make the problem go away. As soon as I heard the term fixer, I thought, oh no, that's me, always trying to fix my loved one's lives so they won't have to experience those 10,000 sorrows. When my children were young, I tried to protect them from suffering, as I imagine most parents do. The Buddha's father did. As the story goes, he tried to shield the young Siddhartha from being exposed to any suffering in the world, going so far as to post guards to keep him from leaving the royal grounds. But as a teenager, Siddhartha dared to venture forth and, for the first time, was exposed to human suffering. I'm grateful for his courage because that experience set him on the quest to find the answer to why we suffer and how we can find relief from it. Like Siddhartha's father, I tried to shield my children from the sorrows of the world, and I thought I could fix all their difficulties. If something wasn't right at school, I was on the phone with the teacher. If there was a conflict with a friend, I was on the phone with the kids' parents. I thought I'd change when they grew up and started households of their own, but I didn't. One of them had a cold. I regaled them with every possible remedy, even though they hadn't asked for advice. With the Buddha's help, I'm a recovering fixer. I've come to understand that this continuous effort to protect my loved ones from the full range of life's experiences is not triggered by their suffering, but by my own. Suffering that stems from my desire to fix their lives so they'll always be happy. Through equanimity practice, I'm learning to let go of this need to shield them from all disappointment and suffering. I'm coming to accept that everyone must be left to experience his or her own life with its ups and downs and its joys and sorrows. To help me with this practice, I silently recite equanimity phrases, such as, I love you, but I cannot keep you from experiencing suffering. Your happiness and unhappiness depend on your actions, not on my wishes for you. May you accept with grace both your successes and your disappointments. As for my own ups and downs, I try to greet each day as it unfolds, knowing it won't meet all my expectations and knowing that most of my desires will go unfulfilled. The key to equanimity is understanding that life is an ever-changing parade of pleasant and unpleasant experiences 
that we rarely control. The self-focused desire of want, don't want mind leads us to try and control our lives by fixing everything to be to our liking. But it never works, leaving us feeling disappointed and dissatisfied. To practice equanimity, I resolve to be mindful of how my experience feels to me during a set period of time, maybe 15 minutes. If an experience is unpleasant, too loud in a restaurant, too hot outside, I acknowledge the unpleasant feeling and then say to myself, it's loud, but that's okay, restaurants are sometimes loud. It's hot outside, but it's the nature of the weather to sometimes be hot and sometimes be cold. If an experience is particularly pleasant, delicious food, a garden in bloom, I say to myself, I'll enjoy this experience while it lasts, knowing that, like all phenomena, it will pass away and another experience will take its place. When I practice in this way, I'm able to touch the peace and well-being that come from connecting with my moment-to-moment experience, just as it is, without the burden of always trying to change it. I also practice equanimity toward the people in my life. Our interaction with others, our, in, our interactions with others, are invariably a mix of pleasant and unpleasant experiences. On the unpleasant side, people don't always fulfill our expectations or keep their promises. In these circumstances, I cultivate equanimity by saying to myself, I feel let down, but this is what people are like. Sometimes they come through for us, and sometimes they don't. Practicing equanimity in these ways helps me accept that not all my experiences will be to my liking, and not all people will behave as I would prefer. Acknowledging this helps me engage life more fully, whether it happens to feel pleasant or unpleasant at the moment. Because equanimity fosters in us feelings of peace, contentment, and well-being, we experience our life as sufficient, just the way it is, without the constant need to fix it. And then there's a chapter on equanimity that has... um, Several other practices, some traditionally Buddhist, one I adapted from Nietzsche of all people. (laughs) Um, So a a few more comments before I see if people have any questions. Uh, I love the Dalai Lama's characterization of the Buddha as a great psychologist. That's how I see him because he was interested in exploring how the mind works and how the way we think and speak and act affects the quality of our life. And like a good psychologist, he was also interested in alleviating suffering. We're in the same boat as was the Buddha. He was not a god. There's no deity worship on this path. He was a human being just like us. This is why I start the book with this quotation from Thich Nhat Hanh. 
It is exactly because the Buddha was a human being that countless Buddhas are possible. The Buddha, the word Buddha means awakened one. And as a fellow human being, he saw the potential for all of us to become Buddhas, to wake up to the wonder and uniqueness of each moment of our lives. It takes practice, practice to recondition the mind. Um, And actually both my books are full of practices. I counted the ones in the second book. I never counted the ones in the first book. And it came to me to an astonishing 58. (laughs) At least the book's more than 58 pages. Um, And I, all of them I illustrate with examples from my life or other people's lives. Uh, they're simple, but I, I hope the practices are life-changing. I don't see awakening as a one-time deal. I understand it to be a potential that arises over and over again. Every moment we're willing to engage our life with friendliness and with care as it's unfolding, rather than being lost in desires and fantasies about how we wish it would be, how we think it should be, how we want it to be. And when we do get lost in those fantasies, how encouraging and comforting to know that we can start again in the very next moment. I suggest you start like the Buddha did, by looking deeply at the human condition. Constant flux and change, a mix of pleasant and unpleasant, joyful and sorrowful experiences, and investigate how your conditioning has contributed contributed to this mistaken belief that you control much more than you do about your life and that you can fix it so that uh, you'll always be happy. When we do this deep looking and investigating, it does more than just make us aware of these characteristics of existence It opens the door to becoming kinder and more compassionate. Because when we understand the source of our own dissatisfaction and unhappiness, we see that source in others. We see that everyone's life experience is similar. Yes, we have our own unique struggles, but they're struggles nonetheless. To quote Shanti Deva from his Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, one of my favorite book titles. In joy and sorrow, all are equal. Thus be guardian of all as of yourself. With practice, it can become natural to reach out to others as well as to ourselves to 
help alleviate our suffering and our pain. And this opening of the heart takes us out of our self-focused thinking. And when that happens, we're able to see what I think of as the big picture. And that is that in every household on the planet, in every generation, in every era throughout history, people's lives have been a mixture of pleasantness, unpleasantness, joys and sorrows. And taking this broader view is what can enable us to say, ah, yes, this is what life is. This is what my life is. And then be fully present for it, however it's unfolding. That's the promise of peace left to us by the Buddha. Um, Finally, I want to say this. Um, There's study and practice. Books are good for that. And there's life. Sometimes things just fall apart for us maybe even shatter. Uh, I want to be clear that I'm not suggesting otherwise. It sure felt like things were falling apart for Tony and me when we were on our way to the ER in April. And I've been thrown off kilter by some events in my own life this past week. But the more I immerse myself in the Buddha's insights, And the more I work with these practices, the easier it is to regain my footing when things do fall apart. Um, I want to close with a poem from uh, a poet I recently discovered named Gregory Orr. Loss and loss and more loss That's what the sea teaches. The need to stay nimble against the suck of receding waves, the sand disappearing under our feet. Here, where sea meets shore, the best of dancing floors. So thanks and... um, Let me see if anyone has any questions. I'd be happy to answer questions for a bit. Sure, thanks. Yeah. Um, I like your discussion of nature versus nurture very much. Thank you. I'm wondering if you if you've given thought or if you talk in the book about our own kind of individual natures, so our mm. own temperaments mm. and how those differ and how we can work with those particular kind of individualized natures in our practice. Well, the short answer is I, I don't think I do talk about that in the book because I I don't I have a chapter uh, on 
anatta, no fixed self. And my perspective is more in terms of ever-shifting identities instead of um, focusing on people's tendency to become stuck in certain types of behaviors or, you know, and, and so... I don't know the answer to the question, for example, uh, whether people are born with a certain tendency to be moody or tendency to be kind. I don't know the answer to those questions. Um, I know that nurture and nature play a role and that, um, that one of the causes of our dissatisfaction is when we... Um, cling to identities that are pleasing to us. Um, I sure clung to law professor. There I was in in bed, totally unable to fulfill those duties. And yet I thought that's the only way I could think of myself. And I would go into a minor panic when I would think, well, what am I if I'm not a law professor? And what I've come around to is that I feel I like being undefined. You know, yeah, I can pick up published author as an identity, <laughs> but boy, I've learned, thank, thanks to the Buddha, it does not, I don't cling to it the way I clung to law professor. So I'm sorry, I, can't, I don't think I can quite answer that question. No, thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Hi. I um, what do you want to express gratitude for your writing? Um, Thank you. I have was told about how to be sick by someone who was facing an illness, and I've recommended it to other people, and they've just told me how how it's just the right book. So, thank you. And I, oh, you're um, having known your story and what you've written about, know how much it probably took to come here, and just want to express my gratitude for that Thank as well, you. because I. When I saw that you were talking here, I, I was amazed and really happy. So, <laughs> I'll tell you something funny. Tony can, uh, was there when I said it. I was in the kitchen eating something before we left, and Tony came in the doorway, and I said, I'm apologizing to my body for what I'm about <laughs> to do to it. So uh, thank you for seeing that. It, yeah. It's tough, but I'm happy to be here. I am. And so I've just started reading How to Wake Up. Mm-hmm. And um, have been reading the, your part on impermanence, which is just has been fabulous. Well, thank you. Chapter one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what I, I guess what I wanted to share is that um, you know there are a lot of books out there, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of voices out there of how to describe you know what people in this room think of as a truth that's really helpful for us to know in this time and place. And there is something about the way you write humbly about your situation and a mixture of the the truth of the buddha and your story with humility that um is is wonderful and i just wanted to express my appreciation for that because not everyone's able to do that so thank you so much thank you this very means much so much to me because i get this i get a lot of emails but i don't i'm not face to face with people very often so it's very meaningful i really appreciate that thank you
Anyone else? Oh, somebody, yeah. I too want to thank you for um, for being here. Um, I know how much it must have must be taking out of you. I too have suffered from a similar type illness since I I was diagnosed in college, and so I appreciate and I I want to express my gratitude for you coming and doing this and. I feel so much gratitude for your presence online. I've read your, I have both your books and just, not just the practice of reading them, but the fact that they're, they exist, <laughs> that they're there, that that's something that's an alternative to so many other ways of fighting mm-hmm. your illness or right. whatever yeah. your condition may be in life. Yeah. Um, you know, fight back against cancer, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, the, sometimes it's called the, the tyranny of positive thinking. Yes. Not that yes. it might not have its place, but right, the sure. tyranny. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank and, you. you know, after 30 years, you just you can't positive think your way out of right. certain situations. Um, and... I just want to express my gratitude, not just for myself, but I feel like I'm representing my online friends who <laughs> can't be here. I know there's one in Melbourne, there's one in Texas, and I've never met them. I can't. Mm-hmm. I live in this area, and I don't yeah. get to travel. Yeah. Um, but they're you know, my dear friends because I've met them through um, online forums like this, and we share, you know, our yeah. interest in your writings and. The, the things that you publish, um, your columns and things like that. Yeah, I do. Also... I write. I have a, a blog for at Psychology Today. Um, I'm sort of a voice among maybe 90 percent of their people are therapists, and I'm not, but they do have a few. <laughs> yeah, and I guess yeah. I. I really don't have a question. Oh, oh well, I'm glad you spoke. <laughs> I'm glad you spoke. Yes, uh, thank you. Thank yes, you. Thank you it's, so much. Um, you know, it's, um, it is easier to be housebound in the Internet age, I will say that, although sometimes it's, it's still horribly difficult. But sometimes I think about people in, you know, 20 years ago maybe, who were isol if, if if they'd been like I am and you are that we would have been so isolated. Um, so it is. I have friends. I've made friends from all over the world. Yeah. With that, I actually have another question. Okay. Um, that is is really how do you keep your practice alive? I mean, in that I know that for me sangha is really important and sangha being literally in the same room with people and as someone who can't go in the same room with people as often as you might like to I'm curious about that well it's a really good question because some people who um, there are some online sanghas Um, there used to be one I don't know if it still exists in second life this virtual reality community zen sangha and there are, there are other, I think Tricycle Magazine has online sanghas. Um, they have not worked for me. Um, and I think 
a couple things have helped me continue my practice without a traditional sangha. And one is that at the time I got sick, I already was 10 years into Buddhist practice. Big, big help. Um, although, as any, any, some, those who have read How to Be Sick no, I kind of I put it away at first. Didn't want, it was a part of the aversion to everything that was going on in my life. But the Buddha was patiently waiting in the wings. So there's that. And the other thing is that I'm incredibly blessed that my life partner, who I live with and see almost every day, unless he's out of town, Tony, is, has been my partner on this path and is... Um, he actually does a lot of Dharma teaching. And so I have someone. I can, he's my Sangha, really. And um, that makes a tremendous difference. I don't know if he, I, I do know we have a friend whose husband has no interest in Buddhism. Um, I'm thinking of Joan. And, um, but she has lots of Sanghas. She's got three or four going, I think. So um, I think it's that combination of the 10 years plus Tony. So I don't, it's not an, it, I don't have an easy answer for that. But there are online sanghas that some people do have found really helpful. Yeah. I'm, I'm also kind of a, a bit of, I'm disciplined as a person. So I can say, okay, I'm going to study I'm going to study impermanence for a bit. And to the extent I can, on a day I'm well enough, I'll do it. So I am blessed. Maybe this is one of those natural things. I, I, I am disciplined. I don't know why, but I am. So, yeah. Good question. Anything else? Okay, well, um, I... I guess you have refreshments for people, right? Yes, and we have refreshments to okay. celebrate. Oh, 